Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What's up and welcome in. You're listening to Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. We'll open phone lines for you, 312-332-ESPN, 332-3776 is our phone number. Hit me up on Instagram, IGJHood on Snapchat, SnapJHood, as I broadcast live from our first Midwest Bank Studios. We will hear from Nick Friedel, who covers the NBA for ESPN.com. We'll get his thoughts about what is going on with the NBA. Of course, we are just... Man, what an hour away from our coverage of the Golden State Warriors as they take on the Houston Rockets game two. Our coverage starts in an hour from now right here on ESPN 1000. We'll hear from Nick Friedel, who covers uh, the uh, NBA for ESPN.com in just a second. Also, we'll talk about the life of John Singleton. We'll have Tales from the Hood. We'll hear from Kelly Carter, who wrote a really terrific article on TheUndefeated.com about the life of John Singleton. If you... I'm sure that you've seen some of his work. Uh, if you have not, you really should check it out. Uh, Boys in the Hood started with him, and he was just terrific in that movie uh, as someone who was a writer-producer. Uh, doing Snowfall now, right before he passed away, was producing and writing that show on FX as well. So uh, we will get a chance to uh, hear from Kelly Carter about John Singleton coming up in our next half hour here on ESPN 1000. I saw Kevin Fishbane's piece on uh, on the piece, theathletic.com, Bears post-draft depth chart, how the rookie class adds to the upcoming roster battles. Um, what Mitch Trubisky as the quarterback, David Montgomery, a part of this mix, Ryan, uh, Riley Ridley, the wide receiver. So here's how he looks at it. Trubisky, David Montgomery, uh, Gadget, running back wide receiver, Tariq Cohen, um, Cordell Patterson, uh, also ex-receiver Allen Robinson with Javon Wims, uh, um, <laughs> Z receiver, Taylor Gabriel, Riley Ridley, Marvin Hall, Zebra receiver uh, is uh, Anthony Miller, and you tight end is Trey Burton. The Y tight end is Adam Shaheen. He goes through the offensive line as well and talked about some of the gadget pieces, you know, that Cohen and Patterson provide for this Bears team. I saw my social media over the weekend. I saw you guys asking me about Riley Ridley. Uh, that's a real player. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely high on him. Riley Ridley is going to be a difference maker, I think, for this Bears team. Is it because I'm a Georgia fan? Well, I'm a Georgia fan, and I saw every snap of Riley Ridley, so I will tell you that, yeah, he's someone that can be utilized and will be can be a good player uh, for the Chicago Bears. Again, we're talking about a rookie here, but I really believe that he can be someone. If you've re- listened to my show over the years, when Javon Wims came to the Bears, I didn't say as much. Uh, there's a reason, because Javon Wims, even though he's on this team, uh, he's no Riley Ridley. Let's put it this way. like Ridley is a guy that can really be a difference maker with Gabriel in that Z receiver, as listed here by um, by our guy, uh, Kevin Fishbane, from TheAthletic.com. So, yeah, I think he's a good player. Ultimately, the draft came down to Khalil Mack coming to the Bears. That's the draft pick. All the other stuff is just garnish, along with the stake that is uh, Khalil Mack. So, I, I like... You know, one thing I'll say about Montgomery, the one thing I'll say about Montgomery is, yes, you can have Montgomery uh, on this team 
as a running back, but the combination of Montgomery, Mike Davis, Tariq Cohen, they better be able to be uh, as more productive uh, than Jordan Howard was. You can say, oh, that's easy. It's not that easy. Let's see what Montgomery can do. Let's see what Cohen and Davis can do uh, as those that run the football for the Chicago Bears. Glad you're with me here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. We turn now to Nick Friedel, who covers the NBA for ESPN.com. He is live in Oakland. He's with us here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Nick, my friend, as always, I appreciate your time. Tell me, what did you, what did you take away uh, from the Warriors' win in game number one against Houston? That was an impressive win for that group hoodie because uh, when you're sitting in Staples Center late on Friday night uh, and you're watching Steph Curry hobble out of the building and Clay Thompson hobble out of the building, each with sprained ankle injuries, and you're realizing that they just went six games against the team and the Clippers that just played their butts off. I still thought they would find a way to squeeze that game out, but if there was a game for Houston to squeeze out at Oracle, in my mind, before it all started, I thought, well, here it is. It's ready-made because Steph and Clay weren't moving around that great, uh, and this was a tired team walking into that new series. So uh, just the idea that in that sort of a turnaround with a day game on Sunday, Golden State still rose to the challenge, I think that's a great sign for them, but uh, as usual with the Warriors in in this moment, it's Kevin Durant being able to continually uh, knock down shots from all over the place and then Steph hitting that shot over Nene. I like (laughs) all that combined into the defense they were playing on James Harden. Uh, That was a hell of a nice win for the Warriors. What's the difference between the Rockets this year and last year? The easy answer is the absence of Ariza. But, Hoodie, as I was reminded before the series, when you look at Houston's defensive numbers post-All-Star break in the last couple months, they are very, very good. So, uh, I, you know, I, I don't get to watch them as much as I would like, but I'd say the differences are there aren't that many differences. This is a, a, a group that found its way after a slow start to begin the regular season. Uh, in the moment, I think the key is that Chris Paul is healthy and he's feeling pretty good, and we all know that he wasn't there at the end of the, uh, this series last season. Uh, but when you watch Houston, and I was watching him from a distance last year, I'm now watching him much closer uh, because I'm around the Warriors day-to-day, you don't see too many differences. And when you talk to the Warriors, they'll tell you uh, all the, the storylines of uh, the defense isn't what it used to be, and uh, they don't have the same personnel. I mean, uh, Ariza and Mbamute were were really nice pieces for this group a, a year ago, but again, uh, they found what they needed down the stretch. So uh, day to day, from one year to the next, it's always going to be about Harden offensively uh, and defensively. Uh, uh, they They have figured it out. So I don't see the the major, major changes that I think so many were looking for uh, in the early part of the regular season. Rockets-Warriors game two at the top of the hour right here on ESPN 1000. Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So here's 
here's my issue with the Warriors and the Rockets, and this is league-wide, but it's these two in particular. This, this incessant complaining to officials after every dead ball, Nick, this has to stop. It just has to stop. And, and from the Warriors' standpoint, before you were covering it, you saw it really all starts with Steve Kerr because Kerr was like this as a player. Every dead ball, anything, anytime he was called for a foul, he's like, there's no way that was on me. Of course it was on you. So Kerr was like that as a player, and you see this as a, as a head coach. It's up and down the roster. You've seen this. Uh, you've seen this home and road covering this Warriors team. You see this with the Rockets. I can't believe that the Rockets uh, leaked that that audit to let everybody know how many calls that were missed last year. It to me for both teams, the Warriors don't need it because they're talented. The Rockets don't need it because they're talented, but it's almost like, for the, from the Rockets' standpoint, it's an excuse. If we don't win, you know the officials are against us. I, I, you know, as much as I enjoy this league, as much as you enjoy it, this is something that Adam Silver has to address. Every damn dead ball is not a, a referendum to complain about officiating. Enough. I agree with you completely. I would say in the short term, I'd be very surprised tonight, Hoodie. With all the attention that the officiating uh, has gotten in at launch, uh, Harden's launch angle when he's going up to get shots, and Scott Foster being on the officiating crew for this game, with all these storylines going into the game, it would surprise me if both of these teams are much more cautious uh, tonight compared to where they were Sunday afternoon. Because they know the spotlight's on them. If you know anything about Scott Foster, more so than most uh, officials in the league, there isn't a lot of wiggle room. If you start uh, complaining and making noise early, he's going to get you. He is going to either tech you up or toss you out of the game. So, uh, aside from that, to, to the broader point that you raised, this is not a good look for the league. And these are, in my opinion, the two best teams, not only in the West, but the uh, the two best teams in the NBA uh, the last couple of years. If you have these two teams with these unbelievable, historically great players bitching after every single call, that is not a good look for the sport. And I know from, from Steve Kerr's perspective, having listened to him, not only in the last couple of days, but throughout the season, uh, these guys understand where they're at historically <laughs> in in the game. I mean, Steve knows that his voice and his actions, more importantly in this conversation, carry a lot of weight. So I agree with you totally that in the end this summer, it's going to come down to Adam Silver sitting in the room uh, with the players and talking to coaches and going through uh, what's occurred and saying, hey, guys, look, we, we need you to do better. And it's not a collective uh, knock on one guy, one player. It's on everybody. These two teams represent all that should be very good in the game. And the entire focus from the end of game one leading into the start of game two has not been on Kevin Durant or James Harden or Steph Curry or Chris Paul where it should be. It's been on officials and how the players are responding to fouls. And that is not good for anyone. 
just it, it's the worst. <laughs> like I, I should know these officials' names. That like like I can't get you can't get around it. I can't get around that Scott Foster and Ed Malloy are going to be two of the officials out there. I mean, it, it just it, and I know the reputation of both, <laughs> but I shouldn't. That's the point. The point is that whatever call is out there, that's the call. I and, and from the in a simplistic uh, way of putting this. If you are the more aggressive team, you will get more calls. The team that does is not as aggressive going to the basket or shooting the ball. Those are not guys that are going to get calls. It's just as simple as that. And, you know, and we got to think about this Harden thing. And we, we should discuss this since you brought it up about Harden. Look, man, if you're going to, if, are you trying to hit the three or are you trying to get to the foul line? What do yep. you? What do you? I mean, what? What's more important in the moment to kick your leg out, trying to get call, trying to get a call, or trying to hit the basket? What's the? What is the end game? the The end game is that you want the officials to bail you out, isn't? Isn't it really about your production more so than the officials' whistle? This is this is the problem. This is not a league problem. It's a problem with some of the upper echelon teams in the West. <laughs> that you've been covering, and that's a, and so, so. So, what do you think? Is, so, for for Harden, what do you think is more important? That's the question I ask you. What What's more important to him? I think what's most important to to James seems to be racking up as many points as he can. Uh, and so, the answer to that question, Hoodie, is to try and get the whistle. And the 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 research has been done. I know we had it on Sports Center. I've uh, seen it in a couple places. James is so far above and beyond where everybody else is as far as getting fouled on a three-point shot. Uh, he has done it uh, 95 times, I believe, this season. Mm-hmm. And when you watch the replays, when you break down, when, when nobody's around him, he's just got to follow through. He's jumping and has to follow through like everybody else. <laughs> and then when there's anybody near him, he's, he's hopping all over the place and he's kicking out his legs. And you and I have had this conversation throughout the season. James Harden is an incredible offensive player. Unbelievable. If I had an MVP vote, my vote would have gone to James Harden because of what he's done uh, this season for this team, especially when they didn't have Chris Ball and they were trying to find their way. Having said that, having now watched him, again, closer than I have in years past because I'm around uh, the Rockets in the West a lot more, I find his game watching it live just annoying. Like, he is awesome. But every third or fourth play, he's flopping down on the ground. And, Hoodie, that's not to say that sometimes he does get fouled. I mean, sometimes there is a closeout, and guys do get too close. But I would say more often than not, over the course of the game, when he's flopping, it's not a foul. <laughs> and that's, right. that's what he has uh, – that's what he's created – Throughout the NBA, because I, I, you know you're watching Game Two of that Raptors Sixers uh, series last night, and there's Jimmy. He's flopping down on the ground doing the exact same thing. I mean, James, Jimmy, all these guys—they are very smart players. And it was interesting listening to Kevin Durant this morning. He said these guys aren't breaking the rules; they're not cheating the game. They're just evolving with how the game has uh, changed over the last few seasons, and that is the truth. They are doing everything they can to get as many points as they can to help their team. So it is up to the league, and this goes back straight to Silver, in my opinion, to say, hey, guys, you can't do this. And to officials to not 
feel compelled to uh, to call a foul when some guy falls over on the ground. So it's a very difficult job. Uh, it, Kerr noted uh, yesterday in his commentary hoodie that he doesn't think that officials' relationships with players are that much different than it, than it was when when Michael and, and Scotty and the Bulls were winning all those titles. But there is so much more of a focus on everything because technology is better, and in three seconds you can see any uh, replay over and over and over again. I mean, there are a lot of layers to this conversation, but specific to Harden, I don't enjoy watching him live because of all the reasons we've outlined here. Nick Friedel with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Are you going to do your um, Periscope uh, ESPN.com thing today with scales and those guys? In the, <laughs> no, no, no. That? I think that's only for the, only for the weekend games. Oh, so, just weekend games. You're, okay. you're talking about uh, hoop streams on, on Twitter. Yes. Yes. Only, only for the big time weekend games, probably in the finals too. Oh, okay, okay. Make sure that if Harden's around or if Golden State's around, you got to make sure you drop my name and tell them because the line I gave you was, "What's more important, the whistles or the or the shots?" So make sure that there you, you go. Make sure that you use that. You I can, feel like, you can hey, that. I feel like we're writing columns for ESPNChicago.com again, live and <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> exactly right. You should. I'm still want reparations for that too. By the way, I want my... <laughs> the beers are on the way in about December. Don't worry. <laughs> I want reparations for for all the cobs I wrote for you. The two thousand words I gave you from twenty minute conversations with you about basketball um, at eleven fifty on a Tuesday in the United Center family room. That was a good point. You know what? I'm going to put that in the title. <laughs> Uh, one last thing, I want to get your thoughts about tomorrow's game with Portland and uh, Denver, that particular series. You know, um, it, in some ways, Nick, I'll, I'll say this, like, I think Portland can win, but here's the point. This is going to be a much difficult, more difficult series for Lillard and McCollum because of the defensive presence of Denver. If you're shutting down Lillard and or McCollum, and you make other guys beat you, that's going to be difficult for Portland, only because I think Denver's defense really does a really good job of trying to get the ball out of, in particular, Lillard's hands. We saw that in Game 1. How do you see the series? Yeah, they're going to make somebody else beat them, Woody. And it's what Oklahoma City couldn't do. Uh, They were trying to stop Dame. It wasn't working, and he just kept hitting shots all over the place. And he played like a man possessed in that series. He was awesome and it's just one game but as i watched last night those are two very evenly matched teams Uh, and in that case the defense or whoever plays defense and is able to steal uh, a game on the road that's the team that usually pulls out a series like that Uh, so i picked portland i would stick with that because i think damian lord is is the best player in that series but we know how talented Jokic is, uh, and we know how talented Jamal Murray can be over time. So that, I think that that is a series destined to go a long, a long way. And if Denver can maintain that defensive presence, they're going to be in good shape. As I watched the, the last few weeks, though, if Jokic gets in shape over the summer, if he loses that gut, oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is going to be – Unbelievable! I don't think the casual NBA fan, even at this point in in the postseason, they understand how talented that kid is. 
if he can can lose some weight, get in better shape, and stay on the floor for longer stretches, <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, Denver is is going to be in really good shape for a really long time. Uh, having said all of that, we're still not sure who's coming out of this Golden State Houston series. Uh, I think the Warriors, if they win this game tonight, I think it is very clear that they're going to. Uh, close this thing out sooner than people think, and they're going to just crush Denver or Portland this year. But moving forward, we don't know what's going to go on with Kevin this summer, Kevin Durant. Uh, we don't know what the makeup of the rest of the top tier of those West teams will be. Denver, if they get Michael Porter Jr. healthy and they add another piece, wow, that team is going to be uh, in good shape, especially because nobody wants to go to Denver and play ever. That's a different experience playing up there. Uh, I like their future a lot. I just don't like their future going potentially past this round this year. Yeah, and don't forget Denver's airport is haunted. So that's also a thing. Um, (laughs) And it's way the hell out there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, got about a minute left. I just want to point out um, the story from Adrian Wojnarowski earlier today, the, uh, reporting that Greg Popovich more than likely is going to formally commit to return to the San Antonio Spurs for a three-year deal. And just from that headline that I saw, I said, well, it makes sense. Wife passed away. Uh, loves being around the game. He's the highest paid coach of the NBA. Why not come back? That that should not be a shock to anybody. I saw that Jack, Jackie McMullen uh, was surprised, and I'm just like, why? I mean, if you, you love what you do, keep working. And he enjoys doing it. Even though he still is, is bitching about the three-point shots and how the league's going, but he still enjoys coaching, so why not come back? Yeah, and it's, and it's a huge reason why he took that Team USA job as well, Hoodie. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he's going to finish out all three years of that deal. Uh, and Woj had it in the story. It's kind of a, a year-by-year thing at this point for the Spurs. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. When you suffer the kind of loss that that Pop suffered uh, in the last couple of years, uh, of course you'd want to go back if you're, you're, you're not tired and you're feeling pretty good physically. I mean, guys who have been in the game this long – there's a reason why they have stayed and they've had success is because it's their passion. It's something that they love. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I am not surprised that he re-upped. I am not surprised that he's taken on this challenge uh, of coaching uh, the, the American squad going into the World Cup of Basketball this summer and uh, the Olympics. I mean, this is what uh, Greg Popovich loves to do in he has done it at a an extreme level of success over the last two decades plus. But there are a lot of great Popoviches out there in the league, Hoodie. I mean, anybody who has stayed that long, uh, <laughs> I don't think the, again, the casual fan understands just how much these guys uh, love the game and love being in there watching film and, and love seeing guys develop. I mean, that kind of stuff is crucial. But, you know, there's another part. Anybody who, who loves their job, who's been doing it a long time, they can see it. I mean, they can see that it fills a, uh, a hole for them within their life on a lot of levels. So, uh, yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are happy to see Popovich stay in the league. I would just wish he would be a little bit nicer to the media moving forward as he, as he find, finds his, uh, his last uh, few seasons here started. 
Absolutely. And, and no matter the off the record stuff we hear about Pop being a great guy, the public right. face is a jerk. <laughs> it, 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 I'm just For years, you like, too. For yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and every everywhere I turn, whoever's covered him, and you know the people that have covered the Spurs. Oh, yeah. Uh, pop, you know, pop 30 minutes before a game will bring somebody in the office and say, yeah, what do you want to talk about? It's like, and the writer's like, well, you got a game in 30 minutes. He goes, I don't, I don't care about that. It's just, it's not life or death. What do you need? <laughs> and so he's always good with that part. But then the public face is, yeah, whatever, and then walks off the stage. Like, that's not endearing. But that's, I mean, that's what East Chicago, Indiana zone, Greg Popovich is like. So, I mean, it's. <laughs> You know that's that's fine, but the, the but but the the private face different, the public face jerk. That and that's that's how he likes to do things. So that there you go, my friends. Always, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you spent some time again. It'll be the uh, Rockets and Warriors at the top of the hour here on ESPN 1000. We'll have coverage of that and uh, enjoy the game. I appreciate it as always. Always, my man. Talk to you soon. Nick Friedel with us here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Uh, we talk about the passing of a great filmmaker John Singleton coming up in our next half hour, part of Tales from the Hood right here on UTH. From your hood to J-Hood. On ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. So glad that you're with me. Do you know I have a podcast? Have you heard about this? Have you read about this? Have you seen this? The Under the Hood podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you download your podcast. Look for Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. We've always got some terrific guests and content that you might miss. Listen, I'm on weeknights between 7 and 10. Sometimes if you're working nights, sure, you pick me up. Sometimes you might be busy. Don't get a chance to hear some of the great conversations and uh, some of the great shows that we have done. Some mediocre, too. Um, so you can catch those mediocre shows as well. Matt Bowen was one of my guests on the Under the Hood podcast talking about uh, a number of things, including young quarterbacks and Mitch Trubisky, Bears quarterback. Listen to my conversation with Matt Bowen. Matt, I want to talk to you a little bit about football philosophies. We talked to Matt Bowen with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I want to talk to you about football philosophy for a second because in the days that you played, it, it, there was a number of teams. I think there are still some teams now in the NFL that don't understand that if you have someone that was a terrific quarterback, someone that really lived up in college, that maybe you can plug in the majority or some of that playbook from college, I guess, again, predicated on good personnel. I'm thinking now more so here in 2019, there are teams that are looking at um, – they're, they're looking at quarterbacks and saying, okay, we know what you did well on film. Let's see if we can be able to replicate that. Uh, do you, can you remember the, the line where that started, where you started seeing more teams understanding, like, this is the positives. Let's, uh, let's accentuate the positives and hide the negatives to try to help this kid be able to help us offensively. I think it's a great question because I go back to earlier when I was in the NFL, and obviously my first year was in St. Louis with the Rams and Mike Marks. And our offense, I, I felt at the time, was much more advanced than some of the other offenses in the NFL. It was more spread set. It was more up-tempo. It wasn't three, five, seven-step drops. You know, that old-school draft terminology we used to use, well, he fits in a pro-style offense. Mm -hmm. Back then, a pro-style offense was mostly two backs, tight end, two wide receivers in the field, some three wide receiver sets. Now, 
Hey, for most teams, that three wide receiver personnel is your first, second, and third down package. The new pro style to me is inside vertical throats. It's play action. It's movement. It's run pass options. You don't see as many deep shots down the field where a quarterback takes a seven-step drop and throws it as far as he can. I think the vertical throws now are more high-percentage throws when they're thrown inside the numbers. You know, that because of an outside route, Jonathan, an outside fade, I don't see that as a vertical throw. That's a quick two-, three-step get the ball out. I'm talking about true vertical shot down the field. And to answer your question, if you're not doing that, Jonathan, as a coach, you're not doing your job. You're not helping your young quarterback. The first thing I would do with a young quarterback, let's, let's take this year's class. Let's say I drafted Kyler Murray. The first thing I would say is, what were your favorite routes from Oklahoma? And they'd tell me, then I'd call Lincoln Riley and say, how do I install this? Lincoln Riley, the head coach of Oklahoma. How did you install this? What's the terminology you use? What were the reads for Kyler? Where did you like to throw the ball? What type of route conversions were in this route tree at Oklahoma? So I could put this in my offense and make my young quarterback feel comfortable. Because if you bring a, a, a young quarterback in and you put a huge, archaic playbook in front of him and say, learn this, this is my system, you're going to run my system, you shouldn't be coaching. Okay, and that applies to every level, high school, college, and pros. You have to adapt to your personnel. Because every year your team can be different. Whether you're talking offense, defense, or special teams, depending on your personnel. We all know in the National Football League, these rosters change so quickly. So I think you have to have an adaptive system that caters and highlights and even maximizes the talent, especially at the quarterback position. I, I know a guy that uh, really felt good about the Vikings last year, thinking, okay, strong defense, uh, terrific mm-hmm. secondary, an, an offense, all they need is a quarterback. I know a guy that said all that Minnesota needs was a quarterback, and they'll get to the Super Bowl. That was this guy. I'm looking in the mirror right now. That was this guy. I had the, <laughs> the Vikings going to the Super Bowl, and they fell short. So I, I look at this NFC North, and I still see that the Bears, I think they're going to be strong, maybe, maybe not 12 wins. But how do you see the rest of the North? Are the Vikings second? best? Are they, are they closest to the Bears? I think they are right now, just because Green Bay is going through a coaching change. The Green Bay has Aaron Rodgers. They have young talent on defense. Um, and, and, you know, number 12 changes things. The number 12 is, is healthy, and what I would like to see with Matt LaFleur, the new head coach in Green Bay, and his system, which is very similar to Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan, is to put Aaron Rodgers in a situation where he throws more on rhythm. What I mean by that is when he gets to the top of the drop, the ball comes out. When he comes off a of play action, he knows where the window's going to be, the ball comes out. Yes, you want Aaron Rodgers to do the things that make him unique and special when he can create magic and extend plays. But really, getting him to throw on rhythm, I think, will advance his game at this stage of his career and advance that offense. But to answer your question, I, do, I still believe it is Minnesota. Now, what Minnesota needs is to upgrade that offensive line. That's the key. They do have a defensive line that can get home. They do have second-level defenders that can cover space. And you look at their secondary, especially safety Harrison Smith, one of the best safeties in the NFL. They can play defense under Mike Zimmer. They're going to go after you. They're going to attack you. And they're going to try to dictate the tempo from a defensive perspective. But offensively, if you want that quarterback to play well and produce, you have to protect up front. And you have to be much more consistent blocking up front in both the run and the pass game. That's where they need to get better. Matt, tell me if this makes sense to you, because I was on the air when the story broke about uh, uh, there's going to be a change in the defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots and the question marks of whether or not Bill Belichick would take over the reins as defensive coordinator. Is that do you? How likely is that in 2019 for someone with the mind of Bill Belichick to be able to work with the defense and still be the head coach? 
That's a great question because uh, I think everyone knows that Coach Belichick is already very heavily involved in defense, especially in-game adjustments. But to be fully invested in that side of the ball, I think it'd be hard as a head coach. I went through it as a player when my first year in Washington, Steve Spurrier was our head coach. He also called the play. Okay, and I think that when it happens as a head coach, it's hard to to be a coordinator on one side of the, of the ball and also manage the entire team, especially during the offseason, especially during offseason install, playbook install, what you do leading up into practice week. To be, because I think believe the best head coaches have their hands in everything. They have their hands in offense, defense, special teams, personnel moves, who they're going to bring back depending on contract situation. I think you need to be the most important man in the building. And Bill Belichick has always been that in New England. So I'm very interested to see if they do hire a defensive coordinator because obviously there's still a lot of time left until September. Do they do hire a defensive coordinator or promote someone within the staff to do that? Because I don't have, look, I have no question that Bill Belichick can do that, that he can run a defense and be excellent at that. Mm-hmm. I think what makes him great is he manages that entire football team. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Jonathan Hood with you. And um, the late John Singleton, it happened uh, not too long ago. John Singleton passed away. Here's a guy here that was a terrific uh, producer, director. His filmography is really terrific when you think about the movies like Poetic Justice and Higher Learning and Baby Boy and Hustle and Flow and of course the movie that many people associated with uh, John Singleton Boys in the Hood from 1991 uh, John Singleton passing away after having a stroke and then um, his family was around him and he passed away uh, at the age of 51 dying in Los Angeles California well Kelly L. Carter wrote a terrific column on the undefeated.com regarding the life of John Singleton. And uh, we'll talk about the uh, the legacy of John Singleton right here on Tales from the Hood, right here on ESPN 1000 and ESPN app. Kelly Carter with us here from the undefeated. Kelly, as always, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Anytime. I uh, I read your, your column. And it was very um, heartfelt talking about the late John Singleton. What was your initial reaction to finding out that he was under the weather, stroke, and then passed away? Yeah, you know, well, when the news first came to us, it was that he had a mild stroke and actually drove himself to the hospital and checked himself in. And, I mean, strokes are, certainly the word stroke in the medical condition, stroke is very serious and should be taken with all seriousness, but I think initially the thought was, oh, he really would drive himself there, so it may not be so major, but then I think like two days later when the news came that he had a second stroke while in the hospital, that became extremely concerning, and then certainly when the news of possibly a medically induced coma came about, that is when I started thinking about what I might want to say about John Singleton's legacy, for, for better or for worse. 
it's just how we kind of function in journalism and pay attention to, especially when people are having, you know, medical issues and, and wanting to really be appropriate and thinking about how to characterize someone's life work, um, you know, in a lot of cases. And so I spent a little bit of time thinking about that because I wasn't able to kind of come up with something immediately, but um, I just wanted to, whatever I said, I wanted it to be right and I wanted it to really kind of um, represent, I think, what a lot of people in this industry felt about Johnson Wilson. Kelly, I, once again, here we are talking about the legacy of someone great, because any time that anyone is referred to as the first, as the first black filmmaker nominated for the best, as you wrote, the best director at the Oscars, I mean, I always think that John Singleton was still underappreciated. Now, yes, we're appreciating him now he passed away, but did you feel that in the moment while living in his prime that he was appreciated enough? I mean, obviously, you know, when you kind of, after something unfortunate happens and someone loses their life and 51 is extremely young to be losing your life, you think, did I say enough? Did I do enough? Did we as an industry say enough, do enough? And, I mean, I think the answer is no. I, I think that was done specifically. I think Hollywood failed him in that he wasn't given the kind of tokens of recognition that are important, I think, to a larger body. They're not always important to the artists themselves. And I think that if you talk to any actor, director, producer, writer, worth their salt in this town, they will tell you that they do not do it with the hopes of getting their name called for a nomination. Nominations are great. Nominations are validating in a lot of ways, but in bigger ways, I think John Singleton got the respect and admiration and appreciation that he rightly deserved while he was here living. And I think the biggest way we can kind of look at that and talk about that is to pay attention to all of the careers that he launched. And we all we obviously can kind of talk about Boys in the Hood, which, with the exception of Lawrence Fishburne was a first film for all the other majors in that. It was Regina King's first film, Angela Bassett's first film, Cuba Gooding Jr., Morris Chestnut, Via Long. A lot of these actors, an Ice Cube, a lot of these actors are marked names in Hollywood. And, you know, there, there are two Oscar winners, three Oscar-nominated actors in that group. And as a young 20-year-old, fresh out of college, he had an eye and a vision for talent. And, yes, black talent, but certainly you know, was able to kind of uh, not only portray stories that we had never seen in film before, but he was able to put people in positions to win. And I wrote in, in my piece, and I've talked about it with, you know, anyone that's kind of asked me, is that every year at the Oscars, I go to the Oscars, I've been going for about the last 12 years, mm -hmm. and John is always there. Um, he almost never sits in his seat. He's always at this bar that I always hang out in because I never see my seat either. And we never really talk at the bar. Um, I usually talk to him on the red carpet before the event, but we never talk at the bar. But this year was different. It was different because all of his people were winning Oscars. You know, at one point he kind of yelled out, all of my expletive friends are, are winning Oscars tonight. He was so excited. You know, Regina won the first Oscar, and then Ruth Carter won an Oscar. And then when it came to the best animated film, he kind of shushed everybody, but wanted everybody quiet down because Peter Ramsey was up for one. And I'm thinking, okay, Peter Ramsey's one of your homeboys. And he's like, no, you know, Peter Ramsey um, worked with me on Boys in the Hood. That was Peter Ramsey's first job, too. He was a storyboard editor 
on that film. And when Peter Ramsey won, John was so excited, you know, kind of rushed to the to the bar top to hear the speech that the trio of directors are going to give. And I grabbed his arm at one point, and I was like, you know, these are your Oscars, too. And it was such a quick, you know, he kind of, like, thanked me, and it was such a quick moment. And I could tell that he was very appreciative of it because his friend that was with him was like, you know, you're damn right, these are your Oscars, too, you know, kind of <laughs> hyping him up and hyping up what I said. And I think that that was such an important moment for him because even if he had felt underappreciated, I think at least in that, like, kind of 12-second exchange, maybe he just felt seen a little bit. And I think that sometimes those moments, um, especially multiplied, are as important as walking away with, you know, the big statuette. Kelly L. Carter from TheUndefeated.com with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. You read uh, Kelly's column on John Singleton and his passing. Okay, so we got to start digging into the IMDb. I'm looking at um, all the movies that he either wrote, directed, or yeah. produced in, and I, yeah. I'm thinking, okay, man, I went to, I saw <laughs> the movies here. I saw, I went here to see this movie. I saw, I remember yeah. some of the theaters. So what is the quintessential John Singleton movie if you narrow it down to one? I mean, obviously, it's going to be Boys in the Hood, but, but the good news is that a lot of times when a, a director or an actor comes out with, like, a big hit off the bat, it's challenging to live up to that moment or to kind of surpass that moment, or maybe that was their one moment. Boys in the Hood wasn't John Singleton's one moment, but it, it's very um, definitive, I think, of the work that he ultimately gave us, which was telling stories about communities that we weren't getting seen told before in the cinemascape. Um, so that was an important, you know, film for him to tell. I think Baby Boy also was an important film for him to tell, mm -hmm. too. And I think if I'm thinking about kind of my personal life and where I was at the time it came out, Higher Learning was extremely important for him to tell. And it was extremely important for me to see. I was a freshman in college when that film came out, and I haven't watched that film in years, to be honest with you, but I can remember it so well. Like, the first probably eight minutes of that movie, that was freshman welcome week for me at Michigan State University. And I remember I saw it with everyone in my dorm room. We all went up to the movie theater in, uh, in East Lansing, Michigan, and we were all, and it was a diverse group of people, mostly white folks, um, all kind of in awe that that movie so accurately portrayed what life was like on a PWI campus and kind of all this kind of, you know, convergence of, of different groups um, trying to figure out how to live and coexist on a college campus at the same time. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, Boys in the Hood definitely is in a category by itself, Kelly. I'm putting poetic justice in that team photo because this yeah. is the first time we saw Tupac on the big screen. And that's his death, similar to Aaliyah in that regard, to, with Tupac passing away, you just know if he's living now, he definitely is uh, probably a megastar. And Tupac on the yeah. screen, and he looked like he's been doing it for years. And, of course, with Janet Jackson, that was, I think, that in 93, as I was in college, that was a terrific movie during that time. Yeah. With P.S., that was Janet Jackson's first feature film. I don't think a lot of people necessarily realize that. That was her first movie. Mm -hmm. And it was such a major coup that John Singleton got Janet Jackson to be in Poetic Justice. We all certainly love Tupac um, as, a, as a rapper and a musician, and to see Tupac and Janet, like the photos of, of Pac and Justice, um, you know, together, or, or Lucky yeah. and Justice, are so iconic right now. Um, 
and and really they feel very um, very contemporary. I think right now too, and you're absolutely right. I think the pot we're still living. He very well could have been right behind Regina King, you know, also accepting uh, an award on a on a big Hollywood stage, and it would have been in part because of John Singleton giving him that leg up. I'll also throw hustle and flow in that conversation as Terrence Howard plays. Well, you know, Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard plays himself in everything. <laughs> <laughs> what is the what is the difference between Terrence Howard and hustle and flow and Terrence Howard on Empire? <laughs> Seriously, that is. That is hilarious. Um, that obviously was another phenomenal film. And again, another example of John Singleton working behind the scenes to um, to get stories told, to help get stories told. Also, we can't not talk about Taraji P. Hansen's performance in that movie. I remember the campaign that year during award season. People were, you know, and when I say people, I mean industry watchers were a little shocked that Taraji got overlooked that year. Um, and remember, if you if you can remember that telecast, kind of the big, the big like, our bad was having her get up on stage with 3-6 Mafia and perform at the Academy Award that year, award show that year. But I remember thinking, like, this woman has something. Like, she is going to be amazing. And, and then when you kind of jump ahead all these years later, when she was nominated for curious case of Benjamin Button. Again, I actually followed her on that campaign trail, that whole year kind of documenting and doing a diary of what her life was like um, with her first nomination. And I remember talking to John Singleton at the Essence um, Black Women in Hollywood luncheon, and he was so resolute. He was like, Taraji will win the Oscar. Like, he, was, he was like <laughs> her biggest cheerleader at that event, and it was so... Right, and, and and it didn't matter that he didn't direct her in that role, and that he had nothing to do with that particular role for Taraji. But his excitement for her, and his enthusiasm for his friend, and his the woman that he turned into a movie star was so evident, and it was infectious, and it was beautiful. And I think that it really kind of, you know, kind of gives you an insight. I think to the person that John Fulton was um, is that he was just happy to have been you know, kind of the conveyor belt in some ways to 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 the road for superstardom for some of these people that he really discovered and put on. Kelly, we talked about the legacy of uh, John Singleton. So lastly, I'll ask you just about, and not even a question, just the, I want to tell you about the, the misinformation, because I know you've seen this as well, about um, John Singleton's death. It's just, it is amazing how some in the media just want to just jump and just try to unplug the dude while he's on life support. I, it is so tiresome, whether this is sports entertainment where, you know, here's John Singleton. He's he's in the hospital. He's fighting for his life. Nope, he did. No. Well, mm-hmm. do you have that confirmed? No. But this is like magazines, blogs, newspapers yeah. already saying that the man's dead when clearly his family's around him hoping that he can come around for this. I'm just I'm going to get so tired yeah. of, of trying to be first when they're so wrong first. I agree with you on that. I also think that it's really disrespectful because, you know, I, I know a lot of times when we talk about celebrities or people with visibility, we tend to dehumanize them in doing that, and that's the absolute wrong thing to do. You know, I I can't help but think that if it were me or if it were one of my parents or an aunt or uncle, I would hate having to make a tough call like that while, you know, there's this bubble surrounding us and reporting on every 
kind of stuff in the way, um, things that I'm not giving to them to report, you know, stuff in the way. And I think that it's important to not be first. Let the Associated Press, you know, come out with the confirmation there, you know, but make sure that you're the person who's telling the most impactful story. I think that's far more important. And that was a lesson that a lot of us should have learned 10 years ago in the aftermath of Michael Jackson. Because we're not going to, in some cases, compete with, you know, the the sites or the networks that are the gossip networks that are paying money to EMS people more than they make in a year to get to get the jump on, you know, a celebrity death. But we can do due diligence and tell a hell of a story about someone's life lived, and that is going to far outlast somebody knowing if you were first to report the unfortunate circumstance of someone's life. Uh, the column is on theundefeated.com. John Singleton's storytelling legacy will live on for generations to come. It was written by Kelly L. Carter from The Undefeated. As always, Kelly, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me anytime. Kelly L. Carter from The Undefeated with us here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, the ESPN app. That's our Tales from the Hood segment, and that is our show because we've got NBA action for you. Houston taking on Golden State. We thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000. Our thanks to Jesse Rogers, Nick Friedel, Kelly L. Carter. Show produced by Sean and Felix on the other side of the glass. All right, we got an Under the Hood show tomorrow. I'm back with you on Thursday at 7 o'clock as well. Full show 7 to 10 right here on ESPN 1000. Don't forget the Under the Hood podcast. Wherever you download your podcast, look for the Under the Hood with John the Hood podcast. That way you can catch up on anything that you might have missed. All right, talk to you soon. You're listening to ESPN 1000. Jonathan Hood. I'm so good. On ESPN 1000.